Good evening. Um, there's a great deal of concern, isn't there, and rightly so, about the threat of radical religion, usually tied in with radical Islam, and you don't need me to spell out um, the actual and potential threats, and mainstream Muslims are having to work very hard to explain to the rest of us that what the extremists and the fanatics are thinking and doing is not in accordance with their faith, with their beliefs, with their book, the Quran. But it got me thinking recently, what does radical Christianity look like? And I mean radical in the sense of going back to its roots and rediscovering uh, our need before God, God's provision for that need. To go back to our roots and really rediscover the astonishing work that God has done and the surprising response that he calls forth from us. Now, in seeking out radical Christianity, radical in that sense, there's no better place to look in the Bible than in the early chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans. So I'll ask you to turn back, please, to page 1131. Brian read to us chapter 4. But if I can just uh, remark briefly on what comes before. Uh, Nigel spoke uh, last Sunday evening on the latter part of chapter 3, where Paul speaks, first of all, of humanity's perilous plight in chapter 3 and verse uh, 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul refers also to God's drastic solution to humanity's plight in verses 24 and following, that God presented Christ Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. And the word underlying the English translation there, sacrifice of atonement, is perhaps the most daring and outrageous word in the whole of the Bible. And it's properly translated propitiation, a sacrifice by means of which God's righteous anger is averted and peace then rules. And Paul has also referred in those verses, the end of chapter 3, not only to humanity's perilous plight and God's drastic solution to that plight, but also to the means by which we experience God's wonderful gift. Verse 28, for example, Paul says, a person is justified by faith apart from observing the law. And that word justified means to stand before God in the right, at peace with God, not condemned, but acquitted, despite our perilous plight, and because of God's drastic solution to that plight. 
And Paul might well have jumped from the end of chapter 3 straight into chapter 5 and to start to spell out the wonderful privileges that those who accept God's gift, God's free gift, uh, experience and come to know. But in fact, he delays a whole chapter in order to hammer in this message of justification by faith. And I find four things within chapter four which make me think of justification as really a very radical teaching, a very radical thing to experience. If I give you my outline at the outset, you can then decide whether you want to stay. First of all, justification by faith is radical in its antiquity. It was there right at the beginning. Second of all, justification by faith is radical in its simplicity. We are saved, we are justified by faith, pure and simple, nothing else. Thirdly, justification by faith is radical in its universality. It fits, and it's the only thing that fits the need of every one of us. And then fourthly, justification by faith is radical in its incredibility. I'm sorry, I couldn't just come up with a better word than that to suit what Paul says. It is a word, I found it in the dictionary, but I can't do better than that. I'll take each of these in turn then. Justification by faith, uh, receiving God's acquittal, being counted righteous by the, the God who is the judge, is first of all radical in its antiquity. It goes back right to the beginning. There would have been those, especially Jewish hearers and readers, uh, in the church which first received this letter, the church at Rome, who would have seen the Christian message, the message about Jesus and God's grace in Christ and the message of the cross and so on, as very new, as novel, a complete turnaround, something they'd never heard of before. But Paul has already said in chapter 3 and verse 21 that the gospel of God's grace is not new. He says in that verse that the law and the prophets of the Old Testament testify to it. It's not new. It's actually very old. But those Jewish readers especially would have wanted to press Paul on this. Do the law and the prophets really testify to the gospel? What about Abraham, the first and the greatest of the patriarchs? Well, I'm glad you asked about Abraham, says Paul. Let's have a look at Abraham, yeah? First and greatest of the patriarchs. Uh, We read about Abraham in the first book of the Bible, the first book of the law, no less. And what does Genesis have to say about Abraham? And Paul, in verse 3, quotes Genesis 15, verse 6, which every Jew would know. Abraham believed 
God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And Paul will ring the changes now during this chapter on those three words, belief, credit, and righteousness. Belief, or faith, credit, or reckon, or, uh, or impute, Very different words are used in different translations, and righteousness, or justification. But there it is, in Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's a doctrine, and that's an experience of justification by faith. It's not new at all. It was there right from the beginning, argues Paul. If you were to drive along the A2 road from Dover to London, or the A5 from London towards Shrewsbury, you would seem to be on a very modern road. I mean, they're paralleled now by motorways, but still quite modern roads, the A2 and the A5. You might not realise, as you drove along those roads, that for much of the time, you were driving along very ancient roads. A very ancient highway underlies both of those modern uh, highways, Watling Street. It goes right back to the Roman times and beyond. Much of Watling Street began as, uh, as, as a grassy path, and then the Romans paved it, and now we have tarmacked over that. It looks new, but in fact, it's very old. And it's just the same with justification by faith, argues Paul. Justification by faith, being counted righteous before God and by God on the basis of mere belief, is not a doctrine dreamed up by the reformers, such as Martin Luther or John Calvin, nor is it dreamed up by Paul, um, away in Arabia somewhere after his conversion. Nor even is justification by faith an afterthought on the part of God, as though, well, I tried plan A in the Old Testament, and that really didn't work, so I'll now try plan B, the gospel, and see if that does any better. Some Christians think like that, but it's not, Paul tells us, not not the way it is. Justification by faith is radical in its antiquity. Second of all, justification by faith is radical in its simplicity. We are justified by faith, pure and simple. I say that the reformers didn't invent the doctrine of justification by faith, but they certainly rediscovered it and rescued it from centuries of neglect. And one of their watchwords um, was sola fide, by faith alone. Faith plus nothing. Now, the common opinion amongst Jewish people in Paul's day was that Abraham was justified by God because he deserved to be justified. One Jewish writing of the time says, Abraham, our father, performed the whole law before the law was even written. Another ancient Jewish writing says, 
Abraham was perfect in all his deeds and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. You see, he was great. He's a good man. That's why God counted him righteous. And yet another Jewish writing says, Thou therefore, O Lord, that art the God of the righteous, has not appointed repentance unto the righteous, unto Abraham. Abraham did not sin against you. So you see that the current, uh, the prevailing opinion about Abraham was he was accepted by God because he was good enough. And Paul says, but you're neglecting your own scriptures. Genesis 15 verse 6, which Paul has already quoted, says that he was credited as righteous, not because of any good that he had done, but simply because he believed God and trusted in God's promise. Abraham then, argues Paul, had no room for boasting before God, and neither do we. Do we not tend to say, or at least to think, well, God will accept me if I do my best. After all, God helps those who help themselves. Surely God wouldn't find fault with me if I at least do more good than bad, and so on. But verse 5 of Romans 4 could not put it any more boldly. God counts as righteous the man who does not work, but trusts God. Whatever place works may have in the Christian life, and they certainly have a place, They have no place at the point of our acceptance with God. As the Puritans would say, wouldn't they will, if you add anything to faith, it becomes a destructive addition. Let me put it as simply and as crassly as I can. Supposing you go knocking on the door of heaven, and God says to you, Why do you think I should let you in? Any response on your part that begins with the two words, because I, is almost sure to be, if not wrong, then certainly muddled. Because I do my best. Because I'm better than most. Because I'm baptized and confirmed and a lifelong church member. Because I know my Bible quite well. Because I pray to you, God. Because I seek to bring others to faith. Because I have faith. (laughs) Don't even say, God will accept me because I have faith. Because that's them pointing the finger at what you are doing. It's your belief. It's tending to turn even faith into a work. We'll look in a few moments' time at what we should be looking at, but not even at our faith, lest that become one of our works, one of our deeds. Justification by faith is not only radical in its antiquity, it's there from the beginning, it's also radical in its simplicity. But thirdly, it's radical in its universality. It's for everyone. Now, a Jewish reader might have said to Paul, well, maybe this does apply to Abraham after all. You've uh, convinced us there. 
But he, of course, was the father of the Jewish nation. What about the rest of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of humankind? Well, Paul asks a question in verses 10 and 11. When was Abraham justified? Was it before or after he was circumcised? And the answer was, it was quite a number of years before he was circumcised. And it's circumcision that makes a man into a Jew. You could be a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, a devout follower of the law. If you're a, a man was not circumcised, he was not a Jew. Abraham was circumcised while he was still a Gentile. And we might add, he was, he was, he was justified, uh, excuse me, Abraham was justified while he was still a Gentile, long before he was circumcised. And we might add, he was justified long before the, the law of Moses was ever given. So Abraham blazes a trail in this matter of justification for both the circumcised Jewish believers and the uncircumcised, all the rest of us who have faith in Christ. He trail, uh, blazes a trail for those who have the law and for those who do not. He blazes a trail for all who have faith, Jews and Gentiles alike. Paul calls in a second witness. He's called in Abraham, the first and greatest of the patriarchs. He also calls in David, the first and greatest of the kings. In verses 6 to 8, he quotes from Psalm 32 from, well, the prophets. The Jews would have called the book of, uh, found the, the book of Psalms in what they called the former prophets. So there you have the law and the prophets, Abraham and David. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2 is quoted by Paul. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord, the Lord will never count against him. Now, if there ever there was a sinner, David was that man. I don't know how many adulterers we have in this evening. I'm not going to ask for hands up. Or how many murderers we have in this evening. But David was both. But he found peace with God. He found his transgressions, great as they were, forgiven. This justification is not for the righteous, for there are none. It is for sinners. It is for everyone. David doesn't, doesn't just say, blessed am I that I'm forgiven. He says, blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven. Justification by faith, you see, is open to all. No one of us, if we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, is any more or less justified than anyone else. Justification by faith is radical in its universality. And fourthly and lastly, justification by faith is radical in its, and again I apologize for this, in its incredibility. The word incredible, the dictionary tells me, means it's so extraordinary as to seem impossible. And that's precisely what we have here. So, something so extraordinary as to seem impossible. And this becomes clear when we turn from faith itself to where we really should be looking, which is the object of our faith. And the object of our faith is the God 
are our God. In verse 17, the supernatural God, the God who gives life to the dead and brings non-existent things into being. In verse 25, we have faith in the rescuing God who delivered his own son over to death for our sins and raised him to life for our justification. In verse 5, our faith is in a scandalous God. How scandalous it is that God justifies the wicked and credits as righteous that person who does nothing except trust in him. That's the God in whom we place our trust It's incredible, so extraordinary as as to seem impossible, but it's true. Such a God inspires confidence. Verse 21 tells us that Abraham was fully persuaded that God would fulfill his promises to him. And verse 16 tells us that God's promise is guaranteed to all, to you and to me. If salvation depended on anything that we had done, We could never be sure, could we, that we had done enough. But since it depends entirely on what God has done, we can have complete assurance. For it depends not on my weak hold on him, but on his mighty grasp on me. And such a God inspires gratitude. Paul will show in subsequent chapters where faith in such a God leads to. It will lead to peace and to joy, chapter 5. It will instill a hatred of sin and a longing to live for God, chapter 6. It will bring us into step with the Holy Spirit and give us a hope that conquers death itself, chapter 8. This is Christian faith. Radical in its antiquity. Radical in its simplicity. Radical in its universality. Radical in its incredibility. May we be strengthened in our faith as Abraham was and give glory to God as Abraham did. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we feel that we stand on the edge of a vast ocean of grace and of love and concern and word and action on your part. May we, by your grace and with the help of your Holy Spirit, enter more deeply in to all that you have provided for us and offer to us in Jesus Christ, our Saviour. In his name we pray. Amen.